You're listening to Two Tape Decks and a Mixing Board, a podcast about life through the lens of music. My name is Jay Mack, host of the program, joined by my co-host in California. Hey, this is Sam Wade saying... Hello, everyone. I'm running into uh, June gloom out here, uh, but I'm still happy. And I'm excited to talk to all you lovely people tonight. What is June gloom? I don't know. I, that's, is that where, the, that where the Cubs fall apart in the, in the baseball season? <laughs> that's a whole different kind of June gloom. You know, okay, so June gloom, I didn't even know about it until I moved out here to Southern California. And every time around June, it gets really foggy uh, most of the day. Um, I know... I th- I, I'm smelling like there might be a fire uh, somewhere in the valley. I don't think there's any like cause for alarm. But every time this year, it's something about the way that the that the barometric pressure changes. And for a large portion of the day, sometimes all the day, it gets very hazy. And it's more than just the smog that's always here. Um, so that's going on. It, it, it lasts a couple of weeks, and then we'll be fine. It's going to be happy again. Poor you with your California weather. <laughs> I would just like to remind our listeners that every Wednesday, a new episode of Two Tape Decks and a Mixing Board drops. It's available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Just Google it. You, you can look us up on Facebook, facebook.com slash two tape decks. We have an email address, two tape decks at gmail.com. And then, Sam, why don't you tell them about the B-sides on Saturday? J-Mac, we started this. I think we just... Uh dropped uh episode five or six uh at the time of this recording but it's something that we've been doing outtakes from the show maybe like uh little segments that we use as a warm-up it's just kind of fun quick takes about different subjects so it's it it should be fun to listen to we kind of get a little silly sometimes too which is everybody needs to get a little silly every once in a while don't you agree yeah because um let's just say we're talking about uh we like our, our wilson episode Go back and listen yeah. to it. You can't do a whole show about Wilson. I mean, I guess you could, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I sit around all week and try to think of scenarios with bizarre things, and then I spring them on you at the last minute. It's true. It's fun. Check it out, B-Sides, every Saturday for on uh, two tape decks and a mixing board. Well, we've got a very special guest, Sam. I'm going to let you introduce him. He's your buddy, but he's he in the in the 15 or 20 minutes that I've known him, I, think, I feel like I've known him for 15 or 20 days, maybe. <laughs> It's true. Uh, I felt that way the very first time I ever met uh, Joel. Uh, We're so excited today to have the wildly talented Joel Dodson on our show. He's a seasoned songwriter, producer, session guitarist, and for the last decade, the co-owner of uh, the live production company TSV Sound and Vision based in St. Louis. They do amazing work. And uh, he's also a very good friend and and compadre, and we've created a lot of different things together. I'm so excited to have him on the show. Please welcome Joel Dodson. Say say what's up, Joel. Hey, everybody. Uh, Sam, I do not deserve that introduction. You are too kind. Um, No, it's it's amazing to be here. Super excited to to join you guys. Uh, love what you guys are doing with with the podcast. It's it's amazing. So I, yeah, I'm I'm psyched. You Thanks, know, man. It's so good to have you. You know, Sam. Whenever you do that intro, I feel like that we should have like a crowd applause come in. Uh, I feel like if we were like Johnny Carson or something, <laughs> like the crowd would stand up and applaud. I that's a hell of an intro, Joel. I don't oh, think I've, I don't think I've he's ever given me that kind of an intro. <laughs> I'm honored. Well, to feel true. I'm honored. 
Well, let's let's just delve into a little bit about uh, what we've done in the past as far as songwriting and, bo- and recording. We love doing that kinds of that kind of things. Joel, how long have you been doing that? How long have you been writing songs and recording songs? Well, I I, I always, even as a kid, I'll, always you know tried to have you know tried to get my hands on what, whatever instruments were around the house. You know, pick, picking up a guitar you know, playing the piano when I was over at my grandparents' house or a friend had a drum kit I wanted to try to, you know, uh, play around on. So I always like always had that desire to really be a part of just trying to make music with uh, with whatever was around. And, you know, um, my dad was always in um, in bands growing up. And uh, uh, so I kind of was you know, behind the scenes, you know, moving amps and setting mixers up and stuff like that. And I guess that's translated to a, a career in the live event slash quote unquote AV industry. Um, but yeah, I, I've been, I've been playing guitar since 93. Um, and uh, I don't even want to do the math on how long that's been. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Um, man. Uh, so uh, and then probably I don't know writing songs since maybe maybe uh, 2005. So I kind of consider myself more of a a, a player first uh, and like a, a I guess a musicologist. And then after that maybe a may maybe a songwriter songwriter. I don't, I, I don't know. I totally agree with that. I think that perfectly describes you. Um, we've had so many uh, interesting conversations about the details that, you know, go into a certain record or a song. Um, and I can totally see you as like a, as a, as a musicologist for sure. <laughs> I, you know, my first uh, in, introduction to your work, um, I was playing with a band in St. Louis right around that. Uh, I think we started the band around 2006, 2007. Uh, called North Northside Sweet Revenge. You were in a band called Telltale Heart at the time, and we started playing quite a lot of shows together. Like Cicero's yeah. was a lot of the time, right? Oh, oh yeah, Cicero's was was our spot. <laughs> yeah, for those of you who, who don't know, Cicero's is uh, or was. Unfortunately, I think it's it's passed. It's it's moved on. Um, but for a long time, it was like just a mainstay of this section of St. Louis called the Loop. Um, where there's just a there's a lot of clubs in a in a small amount of space. Chuck Berry's club, uh, where he was a co-owner of uh, a Blueberry Hill, it's still there. Um, there was two venues in there, um, play those stages. There was a bunch of venues down there, and it was just kind of like the hot spot. It was probably the closest thing to what used to be uh, in St. Louis in the '50s and '60s, Gaslight Square, um, where there was you you could just walk down the street and find good music coming from bars and just kind of go in and check out a show. Yeah, and you know Cicero's was uh, sort of it was at, on the on the uh, west end of the loop, so it was sort of the last the last bar in the whole on the whole strip. But that was really known for being sort of the place where you had this sort of uh, colliding of established bands, uh, touring bands, and then some opener that it was their first show they've ever played. So so right. you really got this kind of this uh, really cool combination of um, totally different experiences and totally different uh, um, sort of uh, levels of uh, of kind of the, the 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 musical career spectrum, I guess we would say, in terms of True. established bands or someone a touring band coming in. 
um, a, a kind of established local band supporting them, and then you know a brand new band coming in for for the first time they, that they've ever played on a stage. So, a lot of people have filtered in and out of uh, out, out, out of there. There's been some um, amazing sound engineers that have that have run that that room. Um, and amazing, John John. yeah, exactly. Colin and John John for sure. Uh, shout out to them. Um, an amazing bar staff was always there. There was a guy named Pat, Patrick uh, Baum who was yeah. uh, just such an amazing guy and uh, a, a truly, truly amazingly talented uh, guitar player and oh, uh, yeah. song, songwriter. Well, and on the other, so, yeah, on, it, it was a cool spot. Well, and on the other end of the the strip, you have the pageant, and that's probably the primo, one of the primo clubs in St. Louis. And you guys, if I'm understanding correctly, you guys have also played that together. That's right. We did, didn't we, man? <laughs> you, you're, you're like you're like Sinatra and, and Martin owning the Vegas Strip. <laughs> well, those are big shoes to fill. I don't know if I fill those shoes, but uh, I can tell you for one thing, we did do a show there. Like I think um, that was that was that uh, playback STL show, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, we did kind of a showcase there, and uh, I believe. Uh, yeah, there was there was a couple bands and, and yeah, we we were there and it's it's kind of a trip to be uh, so used to playing sort of a, a bar, let's call it a bar gig where you know you you could literally step onto the stage from the floor, <laughs> right? Uh, and you know you got your you got your drink tickets in your back pocket and you know and then going to the pageant where you know you have to be you have to come in through a whole separate you know separate entrance and be checked in and you can't really leave that area and you got a green room and there's a backstage and all this stuff and you right. got. You get the crew working, working, and and moving move the back line around and stuff. So it's definitely it was always a real a real treat to play that that room. And of course, great room. as you you mentioned, yeah, and as you mentioned, J, J, J Mac. I mean, that room's that that room has carried so many amazing acts. Um, I, I mean, I've seen so many great shows yeah. there. I've seen explosions in the sky there. I've seen. I saw um, Bone Bear there. Bill, Oh, cool! I've seen, I saw, I saw uh, Billy Idol there once. So nice. I mean, it was a neat, it was a neat experience. So, and that's ironically, the pageant was on the east end of the yep. of the loop. So we've sort of bridged yeah. the, the whole, we spanned the whole gamut of the loop there. Exactly. Well, now they got like the Del Mar Lounge over there. Hopefully, that's still operating too. And uh, anyway, you know, the thing is, is like, that was like one of those cool spots. You could like, you could kind of like work your way down the loop to the pageant stage. You get a chance to kind of just experiment with your stuff on the small stages and you can get it like a really sweet energy and a great room. And then like, you know, I remember like the pageant show was like, you know, I thought it was just so cool to have like a monitor uh, engineer on stage, like, you know, a separate mix. That was like one of my first experiences having something like that. So yeah, it was a fun place to play. And you're right. It has like a rich tradition of just... So many different great acts coming through there. It was so fun, though. You mean, you know, we we definitely um, were in the trenches together. Um, and it's just, it's so cool. You know, one of the, you know, J-Mac, you, you can speak to the fact of just like, you know, slaving away, um, going on stage, banging out your songs. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing like it in the world. It's definitely one of the best experiences. And it's just been fun to do that. But then see those things carry on over time you know, through different collaborations, you know? I was always jealous of the pageant because I never, I played cover bands and we played little shitty hole in the walls or or just like wherever we could get. And I was always jealous of the pageant because they had the green room. They had the special, 
I, I, I felt like I was too special. I'm joking, but I felt like I had a little bit of an ego. And I'm like, why don't I have my own dressing room? And then my wife would be like, because you're playing in a cover band. And it was, it was kind of funny. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with, you know, I used to like uh, rag on playing in a cover band when I was like real young and dumb, but like you know, there's nothing like, playing a show uh you know playing songs that people know and love too you know it's definitely it's a good way to respect the songwriter artists that, that created those things it's, too that influenced so much of our own songwriting it's not artistically satisfying and i'm sure we could all agree to that but there's there's an ego stroking when you can when you can get up on stage and sing a song that somebody else worked and slaved and 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 you know was their baby and you can play it and get this the same applause from the 50 people in the bar that that you know fucking billy idol would get if he if he was there it's pretty cool maybe well maybe not the same but you can pretend you're billy idol yeah that's true you know i i i think um there's like you know it's it's fun though like joel hey have you, have you ever done anything like that in your storied career so after telltale heart and um uh, a, a couple other, you know, original bands. Uh, I, I did, I actually did take the move into like, like total cover band uh, uh, territory. And so I actually worked with a, a band for about four years. Um, and, you know, we, we were kind of known as like the band that played like the mashup song. So we would, you know, we would do like nice. uh, sweet dreams by the, the uh, Eurythmics. Then it go, it would go right into seven na- na- nation army or something oh, like okay, that. You know, yeah. we would, oh, that's so cool. we would, we, you know, we would kind of, and so we were kind of known for, for that. And, you know, I tell you what, that was, that sort of, that sort of checked the box for a, a, a kind of a creative a creative outlet you know it was a it was a different approach to um you know to working with someone else's material it, it was a different approach to that that i thought was really cool and you know i used it as, as a way to really um kind of put my my love for musicology i kind of used that as a way to put that to work and then of course like with you know the whole like leads and solos thing i i really yeah. liked to kind of explore the space outside of solos and, and lead lines that had already been recorded. Um, I wanted to use that space to kind of create a different experience every, every show. So I, I, I rarely, you know, just kind of dialed in the same, you know, same solo or lead every time I like to try to, you know, express myself a little bit within that, the confines of that cover stuff. But yeah, I did that for about four years. It, it was great. I had a blast. And, uh, you know, J-Mac, what you're saying is true. Like, there is something very cool about, you know, you're you're holding a room for three hours, right? You're there and you're holding a room for three hours. And the first set is kind of rough. No one's really, yep. maybe no one's there. Yep. Second set, the first half's kind of, kind of weird it's you know you're trying that you're really trying to get momentum the second half of that second set is like people start just kind of getting getting nuts and then it's like third sets just like anything goes like we it's like whatever like we're playing stuff not even on the set set list there's people that are like trying to get up on stage it's somebody's birthday and they want this they want us you know and there's a lot of energy there there's like a lot of like you know, you are the direct entertainment. You're there to sort of play these people's favorite songs. And so, 
yes, you do lose a little bit of that originality, but there's so much energy. There's so much like good stuff. I think that there's an argument to be made here too, though. It's like something that people don't think about. You know, I remember sometime in the late nineties, taking a trip with my family to Washington, DC. Okay. And we went to the national gallery of art. And at that time period, there was a special exhibit of Picasso, but it was his early work. So like um, what some people would, would, um, what would be described as like the blue period and the rose period and some of his early sketches. And what I noticed at that, at that point was that, you know, these were, uh, this was before he had ever gotten into like cubism or anything like really wild. It was very, it was, it was starting to become more abstract, but you could tell that he had studied the masters. Right. And that's absolutely true about this. um, This artist is that he spent time learning what other people had done before him. So he had a standpoint and a reference point to create his own original work in his own voice. And so I think, you know, Maybe there is something for me at this stage, if I were to speak to my younger self as an artist, to be like, there's really an argument to be made for studying what other people have done before you, um, because there's so much to be gleaned from that that only makes Mm -hmm. them richer, right? And and that's especially important when you're talking about creating something in a specific genre, say like uh, Americana which is what, you know, you and I um, uh, spent like the last couple months kind of wrapping up the solo record that hopefully will be released soon. Um, you came in and helped me with this. And it's, it's in, this is an American genre. And a lot of that, since it's kind of like this American folk um, roots influenced with country and all kinds of stuff, it's good to understand mm-hmm. where that thing came from so that you know what to create as a reference point. No, absolutely, dude. I mean, I I think of certain songs that I learned how to play. Midnight Rendezvous by the Babies, I believe. Uh that had it like The Babies. That had <laughs> that had a pretty interesting like little chording structure to it and uh I learned I learned something uh by by learning that song and I I've have taken techniques from an Aerosmith riff or a Metallica riff or uh a Weezer riff or something and go, I think I can just mutate that a little bit and, and write something else around it. So yeah, Sam, you're absolutely right. You're sort of deconstructing it and you're going, Oh, this is how they did that. Uh, the walk down on, on, uh, on, um, sweet home, Alabama. That, I mean, that's, that's a tricky uh, walk down and to be able to go, okay, here's something I can use for some, one of my ideas. So yeah, I mean, it, although it's not artistically satisfying, you can you can take what you've learned and, and do other things with it. I think that it's interesting to always rem, rem, remind ourselves that there's there's nothing new under the sun. Mm, yeah, and and that everything, um, you know, has a uh, some something that it it was inspired by, and something that it then in turn inspired. Um, and I, I think that loving that process and respecting that is I think is great I think that's what makes us um better players I think it's what makes us better songwriters I think it's what makes us um more aware um musicians musicologists because uh, if you if you have that appreciation of this this was inspired by this but this also then in turn went on to inspire this other thing 
I mean, that's a, it's just a cool, it's just a really cool symbiotic relationship. I think a lot of times we, you know, tend to want to be, I want to do the first song like this. And this (laughs) is, you know, this will be the first time and I'm going to use this weird chord progression and then I'm going to modulate to this thing. (laughs) And I, I tend to think that that, that might almost be impossible because you're still always affected and influenced by the things that you might not even be aware of. There's involuntary responses involved in not only songwriting, but in playing too. Think about when you guys pick up a guitar, I guarantee you there's something you guys play the very first lick you guys play. You pro- it's, it's muscle me- memory, right? It's True. Like involuntary <laughs> response. Yeah. So I, I just think that we tend to fight that. That tends to be like a, 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 a uh, hashtag cringe moment right but i i don't i don't i i think battling that is is not doing us justice i think we want to uh, um, try to embrace that yeah man um that is that is such a good point you know because i think you know one of the things that i hear a lot from um other songwriters especially songwriters that are helping to teach and form budding songwriters and I like to think that we have a lot of songwriters that listen to our show because I feel like it's a, it's amazing to create something out of thin air. And, and sometimes the songs can be magical. Like they just drop out of the sky and it just happens um, seemingly. Or sometimes you you work away and you chip away at it sometimes for years to get to mm. what it needs to be. But I think one of the most important things in all that is ear training, especially from a production standpoint. And one of the best pieces of advice that I, I, I ever got from my dad, who's also a musician, um, mm-hmm. was to like really pay attention and listen to a song. Like try to hone in, like what are all the pieces, what are all the different instruments, the different sounds? When do they bring in reverb and delay? When do they take it out? When can you hear the room coming in on a drum sound? And when is it like just the mics close up to the skins, you know? Um, when you like try to tune into like did they use a a, a flanger here did they use a a phaser you know like all these different things like understanding those pieces helps you listen to all this and you're kind of taking it all in and then learning from like all these different pieces to create something unique for yourself yeah i think that's awesome well i gotta tell you one of the one of my favorite things to do is listen to bass lines uh because I don't know about you guys, but growing up, the bass was kind of like the last thing on my mind. I was listening to the piano, the guitars, the drums, and the singing. Not necessarily in that order. Usually it was probably the guitar up front. But when I started to get older and I started to realize that bass was such a powerful instrument, I think I described... What did I say, Sam? I said that the drums are the skeleton of the band. The bass is the muscle. Does, <laughs> does, does, like that, that. does that make sense? It's a the baseline is really good bass players are really fun to listen to. And I feel like they're probably the most unappreciated member of the band, unless you're like flea with the red hot chili peppers, which is just a, a, a just a stud, which is up front. He's almost a lead bass player. I think a lot of times bass players, even good bass players get kind of shuffled to the side and people forget. So when I'm listening, that's what the great thing about vinyl, it, usually the bass, you can hear the bass uh, it separates a little bit more on vinyl. It's true. Uh, yeah, the, there, there, there's something about the the channel for the bass that that changes on the on the vinyl for sure. 
Um, but I, I think, you know, I, I, I want to take a quick step back to something that, that you were talking about, Joel, and that's like kind of like this war within ourselves is like, I, I, maybe I might describe it as like um, fighting with our influences while wanting to create something original. Is that something that's like real for you? I know it is for me, and, and I feel like, J-Mac, you, you can relate to that too, but I'm really curious, Joel, is that something that you wrestle with? Oh, a- absolutely. I mean, I, I think that in, in my head, I, I always I'm looking for, you know, that conversation go, goes something like, you know, what are you going to create that's or contribute to this project or this song or that I'm writing or this project that I'm working on? Joel, what are you going to contribute that is like totally new and totally unheard? And, and, you know, and whether, whether it's like a brand new type of guitar tone or a new chord progression or, you know, a solo or whatever. And I I think I've just kind of slowly kind of come to terms with the fact that that's kind of like a painter saying, like, I only paint with um, colors that I've, like, brand new colors that I've created myself. Yeah, that makes sense. And you wouldn't really, uh, that that sentence doesn't really make sense (laughs) because, Surely someone has seen those colors before. Right. So, so it's, I, I battle with that all the time. And of course, like, I think the, the, the scary thing, and if I can speak to, you know, anybody that's ever written a song, wanting to write a song or, or whatever, obviously the scary thing is we don't want to regurgitate somebody else's work right. and, and sort of lift it as a way to, it's our own somehow. I mean, that, that, I think that's the ultimate fear, right? That's the ultimate fear is that I did this thing. And then someone's like, Oh, that sounds just like this song. You're like, Oh my God. You know, it's so, <laughs> you know, true. but it's, it's a balancing act because there is nothing new under the sun and we're all playing with the same few notes that we have. It's, you know, it, it's, it's uh, just, just a handful of notes uh, re- repeated across the, uh, uh, across a, a, a piano's keyboard, and uh, I think if if we can put ourselves in that in that highway, um, with the the barriers being on either side, we can still drive as fast as we want and 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 use the lanes that we want to use and still feel like we're free, um, and still continue down the journey without feeling restricted, even though we're you know we're only u- using those those same handful of, of notes that everybody else is u- using. It's about the personality behind the notes. I mean, you can, you can have, yeah. spe- we were talking about cover songs. You could have one person do a cover completely different than the next guy. Um, that's the, that's the magic. You put your personnel, your personality into the notes and that's what changes it. I do have a funny story though, about, I thought I wrote, this was when I was about 15 or 16. I went over to Sam Wade's house and we were listening to some Beatle records and I came home and I had this brilliant riff running around in my head. And I, cause I was like, I was inspired by the Beatles and I thought I had made my own riff. I played it for my dad. He goes, that's day tripper. I was like, what? <laughs> I had rewrote day tripper off by one or two notes. And I was like, Oh man, the word sounds so good. I stole it. That's always the challenge too, isn't it? Um, you know, I, I, I feel like we all have like this common language I'm sensing it between. It's like, I think there's something to be said for like being influenced by other artists and like, 
uh, I know, like I constantly describe like, well, it's like this passage in this song. It's like the guitar tone from, um, from this thing. It feels like a Lindsey Buckingham type riff. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? And, and that's sure. a great communication vehicle too. As long as the other person has actually heard the reference you're talking about. Look, I, I consider every experience I've had with uh, recorded music, whether that be singles or records or EPs or the radio um, or a, a tape I heard once when I was eight years old, I consider all those things the equivalent to a, a you know, a, a book behind me in, a, in my, my, my library. And I mean, I, 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 I guess I, I have a little bit more of a auditory photo, photographic memory, but I can, I can hear those, I can hear all of those those pieces, I, if if I if I want to play them back in my mind, I can hear all those, and 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 that they all contribute to um, helping me just sort of understand where I want to go mu- musically with this piece or that piece. I mean, J yeah. Mac, one thing that you said about about bass is is so so interesting because you know bass guitar and. I, when I was, in, I, I remember I, I was starting a band. I, I was uh, in eighth grade, and we had two guitar players, me and this guy Sam, uh, not Sam Wade, <laughs> and uh, and then this, uh, and then a, 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 a dr- drummer. And my dad, who was who was in at that time, was in a cover band. He's like, well, "Where's your bass player?" And I was like, "Well, we don't need a bass player because the other guitar player just plays heavier." Yeah, yeah. And he's like. <laughs> you're there's you know there's no substance there. yep yeah and i always thought that was kind of silly but at the same time you have to remember like guys in the mid 90s it was a lot of like and so that music as a you know a preteen teenager just kind of translated to a bunch of bar chords power chords right so the intricacy of something like the bass uh was probably lost on me as a as a as a young young kid um and also in a, a radio set, setting those bass frequencies are kind of hard to decipher they if are if they are varying from a chord progression but i will tell you this and this is for everybody out there too you need to, you guys should go back and listen to dusty springfield's recording of son of a preacher man because uh. tommy cogbill Tommy Cogbill plays the bass on that track. And at the very end, I mean, first of all, the bass line throughout the whole, the whole track is smoking. Yeah. At the very end, there's a, it sort of starts to fade out and they, you know, there, it's the, it's the chorus repeated over. Or, he tears it up. It is an insane display of, of what you might think of as your sort of, cold corporate recorded mu- music this dude is on that track and he is tearing it up and i'm not i'm not talking like tearing it up in like 1960s kind of like oh like he was good for like when did that album come out let's see like uh, <laughs> 1969 yeah he was he was okay for no this dude was tearing it up um and i think that uh we and and th- there that again points that the circle goes back to that musicology. I hear him. I hear that line in my head, and I whenever it's applicable to something I'm working on, I'm like, oh, you know how 
maybe maybe I pull from that. Yeah. Or maybe I pull from Shaw Day, or maybe I pull from Kate Bush, or maybe I pull from um, you know, I mean there's so many you know, I'm I'm ram- rambling here, but I did like your point about the about the bass playing because th- there's some amazing intricacies that get lost in translation, whether because you're listening to the radio or if you're like me, you're just some you were just some dumb kid that was just focusing on power chords. <laughs> it was a lot of chugging and the bass kind of got lost sure. in the chugging. So the bass is like the unsung hero of of, of guitar bands. I was going to say the other unsung hero, hero for uh, any alternative rock to get them onto the radio was the dreaded what I call the 90s crescendo, which is if you didn't know how to go to the next uh, part in the song, you just went I mean it's it is it is almost comical uh what a type of like uh, uh theme <laughs> that is. I love that dude. You know, when you when, when when you do those chugs like that, you do the dun dun I keep hearing better than Ezra uh Oh yeah the wah, uh, and it's good. Oh, yeah, good. <laughs> Which is a great song, you know. And sure, it, of course, it, of like, course. It, it illustrates that whole like you know downbeat kind of chug of what the what what oh, night yeah. alternative rock really was. I dig that, man. Oh, and, and uh, that that song. Uh, let's see. When did it when did it uh, get re- released on CD? Oh, ni- 1995. There, there we you go. go. There we go. <laughs> there you go. 95 was a banner year for 90s music you know some people might argue that that's when uh, actually when it started to become more like you know kind of you know com- you know taken advantage of or like marketed at that point and it's it's true there there is like some things that were changing there people realized oh this whole seattle sound we should capitalize on this and it was like this whole renaissance for the seattle underground scene um probably beginning around you know 91 92 all these bands started getting signed but at the same time, I mean, like so much great music and so much great rock music came out of that time period for fans of like just like going for it on stage, breaking guitars, you know, snapping strings, bleeding on your guitar, heart on your sleeve. Rock music came out during that time period. I mean, um, it's even to the point where like you have these bands that kind of emerged after that point, like Foo Fighters, which would be, you know, like post grunge is like how some people would describe that stuff. Um, but it really was kind of this renaissance of like getting in and just losing yourself in the music. Like I remember like jumping in a mosh pit so many times at so many shows during that time period. It was like ridiculous, you know, you know, before that was slam dancing is what people would have called it, but it's just like, just getting in there, getting lost in the music. There was just something special about that time period, which I'm really glad that we brought that up. But, you know, some people don't realize how many other albums and how many different sounds came out during that time. You know, because you'd really have like that whole renaissance of like song singer songwriters too, Sean Colvin, which uh, I'm sure you could speak to even better than me, Joel. And you have like, you know, Jewel kind of dropped at that time mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. Um, everything that turned into what the Lilith Fair was happening. Um, but you also have like there was kind of like this resurgence of like swing music. Yeah, remember that? Yeah, like Big Bad Voodoo Daddies yep. and Squirrel Nut Zippers, like it was kind of like people got really excited about going to shows and like not just standing there with their arms crossed, listening to the music. They got into it. I miss that. It's true. 
That's what's happening in EDM now, by the way, in my opinion, and in the in the hip hop scene. It never left the hip hop scene, let's be honest. But like, you know, people that getting into it and just losing themselves in the music, there's nothing like that. That's what I'm addicted to doing live music, by the way. It's mm-hmm. being able to like create an environment, hopefully, that changes the room. Um, it's the same thing that happens when you go and see a movie. You know, we talked about that last week, um, but it's just like getting lost in the moment and kind of getting lost in the music and just let it wash over you. There's something magical about that that I'm just really addicted to being on stage. Well, also the 90s, didn't 90s give birth to the big uh, like festivals like Ozfest and Lollapalooza? All that True. stuff really came out in the 90s. And I, well, I think I, the reason I picked the 70s and the 90s for our B-side, see that uh, later on this week, uh, is... Uh, <laughs> is the 70s was an explosion of styles the, like the like the eagles kind of country scene like the birth of metal with zeppelin and sabbath the, the funk scene was unbelievable in the 70s and i mean then the i mean the 80s had some stuff i, I mean the 80s aren't my favorite decade um and maybe i should know more about them but once again it feels, oh, we're gonna have to disagree there but that's that's for another episode <laughs> like it, it feels like to me the 80s were not as prolific uh, evolutionary wise as the 70s and 90s. I, th- that's just my opinion. I could be totally wrong and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's why, at least to my mind, that's why I picked the 70s and the 90s is kind of like a very fertile ground for uh, birth of new music. And maybe I think some some True. stuff was birthed in the 80s, but it didn't become mainstream till later. Does that does that make more sense? No, it it, it totally makes uh, sense, man. And the yeah, I, I mean, there's so much um, that happened during that time period. I mean, and a lot of it, I think, was reflected, you know, in like a post Nixon, post Vietnam era for this country. Is you know, it's the same thing that happened in Hollywood with with, with, with with like the new Hollywood films. You had films like Taxi Driver and Mean Streets and. Um, now, uh, Midnight Cowboy, kind of these countercultural uh, films that came out during the time period that kind of just revolutionized, like anything goes. Uh, the French Connection is another one I think of where it's like just real gritty. And I think the same thing was happening with music where people were like, you know, trying to come to terms with like maybe the Summer of Love hadn't panned out the way that they thought, you know, further down the river in the stream, it got a little bit harder than, than what you thought it was going to be. And it was like this time with people like, well, what can we do? What can we try? I think the same thing was happening in the 90s. Um, I would argue the same thing is kind of happening right now with artists like you know, Billie Eilish just kind of and, and her brother Phineas, the way that they're producing the, like this minimalist pop. Um, and so many other artists we don't have time to mention. It's kind of like things are getting like churned up. And like this, the stakes are raised and people are like open to new experiences. It's kind of happening now. Well, I mean, you could you could look at it when the culture is kind of in upheaval. It's reflected in the art of that period. That sounds really intelligent. I didn't realize how intelligent that was going to sound until it came out of my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that another thing to possibly consider is that you know, in in the seventies, uh, we saw recorded music move away from uh, the you know the the twenty second floor on in, in a, a building in in, in New York, uh, and we and moved more toward um, you know you know some you know Sausalito or uh, you know some place some other some other you know 
recording in Jamaica at Air Studios. <laughs> yeah, you know, and and likewise now, of course, we're we're seeing recorded music being made from people's bed bedrooms. I mean, you brought up Billie Eilish. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe uh, Phineas and 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 she recorded all that stuff basically on their own. I, I mean, they was in their family home studios, but they yeah, but they. They were doing that. That was their own project. Um, And this, of course, has become, uh, you know, kind of more of the norm. And, you know, this even translates, Sam, to what you and I have been working on. I mean, uh, 2020 was such an upheaving year. And we had to we had to make the best with the resources that we had. And, um, you know, that that meant that. People turn toward their own homes, their own resources uh, to continue their craft, continue their their art, and um, yeah, I mean all uh, all the tracks that I I, I contributed to uh, to the album that they, they, that you're you're working on. I mean those all came straight from my basement studio. So. <laughs> Isn't that amazing that we're able to do that? I mean, like my my 16 year old self is like mind blown you're right j mag like who would have thought you know i you know i think we all kind of started with that you know cut our teeth probably recording with like a task cam poured a studio in our bedroom mm-hmm. you know and for those who don't know i mean i'm talking about like for me uh, they had a four channel and eight channel version but like it recorded to a, your typical cassette tape and it had all the knobs and the mixing board and everything, but like you were just kind of left to your own device to try to create a sound. And now it's like, okay, for okay, so so here's a good example. I just recently snagged this thing off of uh, this plugin company, Spitfire, um, has this thing called uh, the the Mrs. Mills piano, and they expertly sampled this virtual instrument that came from the Abbey Road studio, the same piano that was used on Penny Lane. Oh. And with a little help from my friends, I think on Hey Jude, I have to fact check that, but I'm just going to say that maybe it was because it sounds like <laughs> it, but this same piano, someone went in and they sampled it and I can then take that piano. <laughs> it's insane. I can take that piano. I can play it with my little MIDI controller and I can play that piano, the same piano that Paul McCartney used on these recordings. So many other amazing artists. Um, it's incredible. And this thing is, you know, this is not a plug for Spitfire. They're not paying me to do this, but I, it's just, the point is it's like, you have so much at your fingertips now to create these things. And it's really this amazing renaissance and being able to collaborate remotely um, and just make these incredible recordings with like, you know, minimal investment. Well, Joel, I've got to money. Well, Joel, it still takes time. Well, Joel, I've got to say, I've heard the, what you did on the confession song and Sam, what, what episode did we play that on? Was that our songwriting episode? That's right. Um, and <laughs> okay, like go and listen to it on Spotify, please. Uh, Joel, you killed it. You killed it. Oh, on the dude, guitar it's really. I mean, oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I would, I think, I would encourage our listeners to either listen to it on Spotify or go back and listen to it's on the art of songwriting episode. I think it's twenty three or something. Spot on, Joel. Now, how did you approach the guitar to that? 
Um, well, yeah. Uh, thanks for thanks for bringing that that up, and I appreciate the kind words. I, I will preface this all by saying that I I'm I can only I can only do as good as as the song itself, and um, Sam is uh, just a, a, a insanely talented songwriter. And um, thanks, man. So it, the the work was rather easy on my part. <laughs> no, no, you're um, supposed to say that you that you went into a cave and like. Like uh, Ro- oh yeah, like yeah, you know, like yeah. a no, Robert well, Plant. Oh no, like a Jimmy Page, and you went into the room and locked yourself in there with a with a bottle of Boone's wine and didn't come out for four days or some some shit. Joe has some amazing guitars and amps, and I got to tell you, if you're looking for a session guitarist, um, he didn't know I was going to say this, but like his tone game is amazing. Um, I'm, I'm curious of like, you know, kind of how you approached the tone and the, the approach on that song. Well, man, I appreciate that. Um, so as you and I talked about the song, it was clear that we wanted, you know, you wanted to try to get a, as, uh, definitely, uh, what I would consider like a new Nashville, uh, style to the, uh, you know, to the tonality of, to, to the vibe of, of the tune. And, um, I I immediately sort of my musicology brain kind of started that we I, I just took that and ran so I just started compiling in my little you know mental database all the things that came up in my head when I thought about those kind of themes and so I thought about um, this amazing Leanne Womack um, album called I Hope You Dance mm-hmm. that album is is absolutely absolutely incredible. It is True. some of the best, some of the best guitar tones, uh, some of the best, just straight studio drum uh, tones, um, great guitar tones. I thought about, um, uh, I mean, th- there's just a ton of artists that I just was trying to think think about. Vince Gill. Um, oh, then, incredible you know, guitarist, unbelievable! Yeah, amazing. So much amazing, tape, amazing. too. Amazing, yeah, amazing good, good, good guitar player. But then I also wanted to give a sense of grounding because I knew that, you know, Sam was really, really wanting to approach this from a very grounded, very um, sort of with with a perspective um, to the the framework of the song. And so I, I looked even further back to try to figure out, just like we were saying, what was the stuff that I'm inspired by? What was that inspired by? And so. Um, I decided to kind of pick back up on the um, uh, just the the bass uh, the bass guitar rhythm uh, of of a Johnny Cash um, sort of vibe, which you know, boom, boom, yeah. boom, 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 because I felt it was important to at least get, uh, show where that where that came from, and so I, I feel like what we ended up with was this really kind of neat um, combination of. Uh, the past um, and how it was influenced by uh, or, in, or how, how it influenced a, a sort of newer genre from that, that sort of new Na- Nashville style. And then how Sam was able to sort of pay tribute to that. So it was this kind of neat um, culmination of, of um, influences. And, you know, I, I recorded that in my basement studio. Um, I've got a couple uh amps that i've been auditioning that i had been auditioning for the project yeah um and uh um that was mostly played actually it was all played with my sewer um 
S style uh, guitar, just so we can we can keep the keep the trade trademarks <laughs> all good. And uh, honestly, I think, um, believe it or not, Sam, for that track, I, I, I used a lot of tones straight out of this uh, two notes um, torpedo. Uh, oh, nice! Uh, it's, or no, I'm sorry. Is it the is it the tor- oh no? That's the two note two notes cab cab m oh interesting so that ties directly back to what we're talking about like (laughs) all of this amazing like technology is at your fingertips um and the the crazy thing about how like technology is like exponential in its development in its development right now is that this stuff becomes so uh, affordable what i what i really appreciate about like um your you're digging into where you came from, from that too. Is just like, it, it really like, you know, kind of displays like, like the idea of having reference points of things that you love, taking it, creating something new out of those influences, letting like, you know, the muses, the, the spark of creativity inside of you kind of run with it and go with it. Um, and then kind of embracing these new technologies in a way that makes sense um, for you as an artist is part of the fun of actually getting in and making these things. And, you know, I got to say, you completely nailed it. And uh, it's just cool to, to, to kind of see that creative spark kind of like grow um, with this thing that kind of takes on a life of its own. You know what I'm saying? Like, and that's something that, you know, to encourage all of our listeners out there who might be like, you know, wrestling with like, you know, what people might call imposter syndrome or like being like, you know, who mm-hmm. am I to say that I have an idea? You mm-hmm. know, there's so many people trying to make this thing happen. When it comes down to it, if you're enjoying it and you're loving it, you should just do it. You know what I mean? Amen. Like, absolutely. Amen. Yeah, you can't spend too much time thinking about what you're doing is i mean as far as if if you're writing a song or you're you're playing just let it happen i feel like the worst thing that we can do as artists is to uh micromanage or or over uh put a microscope up to what we've done and try to like explain or understand it and i've and i i come back to this all the time music is magic i can't explain how a song makes me sad i can't i I can't explain how music with no words can make me sad. I don't understand how, how music with no words can make me happy. Music is magic. And sometimes you just got to go and just let your soul out. Just uh, play with your soul and then worry about the, the plagiarism shit later. You know what I'm saying? Uh, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you'll, you'll find that out when you get the lawsuit. Yeah, you yeah. know, you're going to be like George Harrison with, uh, what, what was the song? Uh, my Sweet uh, Lord. My Sweet yeah, Lord. My Sweet Lord. Or she, like John so Lennon, He's so like, fun. come together, get in a lawsuit. <laughs> you're going to find it out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it'll happen. They, they will eventually come knocking on your door. But, but well, my, what are you going to do? You know, Joel, you mentioned earlier, there, there's only 12 notes in the scale. There's only so many ways that these notes can be arranged into chords or into melodies. But you know what's incredible to me is the fact that with that limit, like, you know, really limited amount of tones that we have to work with, how still even now things continue to excite us, surprise us. New music comes out, new ways of rearranging these things. The universe that we live in is is so vast. Literally, there's so many ways to combine these things that when you really like get into it, like it can just kind of 
blow your mind of what you can find from these different things. Do you agree? I, I couldn't agree more. And that's, I feel like that's the motivation that right there. And just like J Mac was saying, like that is the motivation that needs us, that needs to keep us moving forward and not the fear of what am I going to think of myself? What are others going to think of me? Um, you know, there's, I, I honestly, guys, I, I'm a really big believer in the fear love spectrum. I don't know if you guys participate in that explain it to me daily or not but explain it to me well it's 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 this thought that in the things that we do the things that we think or feel interact with um that it's part of a spectrum or at least it can be uh if we operate if we if we if we choose for it to be and and that would be one end would be fear and the other opposite end would would be love and uh, the idea is that you know if you're if you're scared of, let's use, you know, writing a song, if you're scared what someone's going to think of you or what you're going to think of yourself, you're in the fear, you're in the fear spectrum, part of the spectrum, wow. you're living in the fear side. Yeah. But if you're saying to yourself, you know what, I, I don't know what this is going to be, but I feel this right now, and I need to put pen to paper, and I'm just going to do it. And I, and I'm going to nurture that side of myself. Well, uh, now you're starting to creep over to the love side right? You're starting to, you're starting to dance into the side of, of loving yourself, loving your experience. And honestly, I, I, I think that that's, I think focusing on that stuff is, is so important. Just like I was saying earlier about sort of influences, right? If we could just use that broad term, the fear side would be like, oh man, I don't have any like uh original thought of my own i'm just i'm just i, I just think about these other songs and then i, I just it, i have no original thought or but for the but the love side of that would be you know what i love these pieces that i'm thinking of right now i love that song i love that guitar tone and that is so cool that like i'm thinking about that right now and it's kind of leading me down this path because I'm, I'm just i love i just love that song so much well those are two different perspectives of the same situation, right? And I really feel like, and don't get me wrong, a lot of great, great things, like great songs have been sort of pulled from, out from the fear side of the spectrum. Oh yeah, not, oh you yeah. Know, of course, I'm not, I, but, but I think if we can try to dance in the love side, I think we can see that uh, we can be better to ourselves and not beat ourselves up so much when it comes to, you know, what am I doing? Wow. The fear of success is just as powerful as the fear of failure. That's deep, dude. Wow. <laughs> you sound smarter than me right there. <laughs> it's true. Joel, speak to that just a little bit. The fear of success. I, I think that I, and I, I'm just speaking from my personal experience. I, I think that, if we if we're so used to kind of looking down on our own processes and we're so used to comparing ourselves with other people or or other things or other journeys or other ideas of success that becomes our sort of truth you know um i'm not a good songwriter i'm not writing any good songs this i mean this person's done so much and they're 10 years younger than me. Um, and so it, 
it's almost as if you're, you know, if you're, if you're dwelling in that spot, it's almost as if you're um, uh, 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 jeopardizing or, or um, I'm, I'm, I can't, I can't figure, I can't find the, uh, the right, right word. You're, um, you're sabotaging your own potential success. Um, and it's, it's almost to the point where you have a fear of what if, what if you are the bad, you know, you become the person that you want to be. What if that were to happen? And if you, if you think about wow. that is, that is a little frightening. Um, and, and that's why I, I do think like whenever I get kind of that, that, that fear kind of feeling, um, I do look at that fear love spectrum. Where am I on that spectrum? And am I, am I feeling the fear of failure or am I actually feeling the fear of success? You know, I have a fear of heights. So I know that every success I take, if I were to step up onto a ladder, every step is a success, right? But I don't, that's not something I'm happy about, <laughs> right? Because it's a fear of success because what's, because at the end of the day, what's going to happen when I, when I get, get up on the roof um, and I have to come back down? So I succeeded in my task, but it's the fear of that because I, I don't know what that means for me. Well, that makes so much sense to me, man. Um, I, I, I'm just so thankful, you know, for you being willing to kind of just like dig into that, too, because I feel like that that's something that just about everybody can relate to. You know, I had this sneaking suspicion that even the most famous people in the world are kind of wrestling with this idea of not knowing what the future holds, right? We're all on this planet, which is essentially this rock floating out in the middle of nothingness. And, you know, so much of our life um, depends on finding our way through this thing that we experience every day together. And when you're a creator and someone that's putting like your heart out into the world, it's, it, it really can be such a, such a tricky bastard is how I'll say it. It's like, of just sabotaging yourself and thinking and, and comparing yourself to some other artist and to realize that like everybody is kind of wrestling with it and trying to figure out who they are, what they have to offer um, can be really freeing if you just let it happen right? Like not be afraid to let it happen. Um, and, and just, you know, dig in just for the love of, of expressing what's inside your heart. I'm reminded when you talk about fear and love, I'm not sure if you've seen this video, I kind of got a sneaking suspicion that you have, but it makes me think of the amazing comic Bill Hicks. He has this monologue, um, where he talks about life being just a ride. And if I can say it, it's kind of become a philosophy for me when I'm at my best. Because <laughs> it's, it's, it's like really freeing. And if you haven't seen it, go on YouTube and look up Bill Hicks, Life is Just a Ride. And one of the things that he talks about in there is like, he brings up the point that right now, we have a decision right now in this moment a decision between fear and love, right? And the idea that like life is just a ride, that like everything that we're doing is 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 trying to participate in that existence that that we all have. Um, it's just really incredible, Joel, that you're willing um, to go there, first of all, but you're so right. 
we just have to like go for it and just jump into the mm. deep end and just go for it. Like, I, 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 I know that seems so simple, but like, is there a better way to describe that? J Mac, Joel, do you guys have anything to add to that? I, I just really don't know where to go from there. I'll let Joel answer. And then I think I got a good way to end the show here. So Joel, you want to speak to that? Yeah, man. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Like not only just go for it, but just realize that, um, and I love the phrase, I don't know what I don't know. Um, because the world is so much bigger than myself, but yet it's still as small as the inside of my, my mind. <laughs> so <laughs> going for it and realizing that, you know, speaking from a third, third person view, you, you don't even, you don't, you can't even see the amazing stuff you're going to do. You don't even, you can't even comprehend it. And I try my very best to think of my guitar playing or my songwriting or whatever it may be. Again, like what you're saying with, you know, life is a, a, a ride. I want to be on that highway. I want to be on that open highway. And yes, I've got a barrier on the left of me and I got a barrier on the right of me, but I got a lot of room in the middle here. And my, and my, my gas pedal goes down a long way. <laughs> and so I, I want to feel like I'm free within whatever it is that, that, that sort of is, you know, kind of, I don't want to say confining, but whatever it is that I'm kind of, kind of guided by, I want to be free in that in within that space. And I feel like if we can live in that space, whether it be songwriting or, or, you know, relationships, uh, how we analyze ourselves, how we think about our day-to-day processes, all this stuff. If, if we can kind of participate in that kind of mindset a little more, we have no idea how far and how fast we're able to go. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. And I will say this, one final note. Uh, y'all got to check out that Sam Wade album when it drops because uh, <laughs> it's going be, to be pretty amazing. So Yeah, I hear there's some killer guitar work on it. You well, know, good uh, songwriting too. It, 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 well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And and for those of you that don't know, I am going to release a, a solo album soon called Tributaries. And Joel, I mean, this may not make it make the edit or not, but I just have to tell you right now as we're talking about it, like you came in on the project at a point that was just the just the right moment. Like I, I was starting to get to that point where I was. I don't want to say losing hope, but it was, it was starting to lose context of, of what was going on. And you came in and I breathed like this new life into, to what was happening with these tracks. And I'm really, really proud of what we created. And I can't wait to get it out there into the world. Um, it's actually being mastered right now at an amazing studio in Nashville called welcome to 1979. And I'm so excited to have Maggie working on this record and I just think it's going to be really great. So we'll talk about it when it actually drops. Um, but I just want you to know, like, what you contributed to this um, was so much more than what I ever expected. And it's just a testament of who you are as a person. We've had, like, a long history of collaborating on so many different projects. Yeah, This one kind of felt like it was just at the right time. And... Uh, I kind of feel that way about this episode too. Like, I feel like you're jumping on, 
I think we went deep, right? Like we went into some really deep things that maybe we didn't expect to, that we would get into when we started this. But I feel like it's just so important for the listeners um, and others, our other fellow artists and songwriters and people of all different kinds of backgrounds um, to come from. It's just just going for things and, and kind of em- embracing it for what it is. I think you really scraped down to the marrow of of yourself in a lot of that material. I think that you you uncovered. I think that you went to the um, the vulnerable spaces and 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 you actually you pulled up the you know the unhealed you know, parts of, of, of those, those, those places. Now uh, that's, you know, there, there, there are some wonderful, wonderful, happy moments too, but I, I just, I'd be remiss if I didn't minute, minute mention how uh, it's, it was just been an honor to just be in the presence of just that vulnerability. Um, Cause it, it is, it is real. It is tangible. I think that um, when the album comes out, I think it is something that, that the listener will will have no mistake about, and uh, it's uh, been a, such a cool pro- project. And J Mac, I gotta tell you, man, I really appreciate you and Sam um, having me on uh, for, for for this episode. Um, what you guys are doing is is so great. You guys just have this this touchstone, and you guys talk about um, just some really interesting and and more um, just unique. Uh, more depth plunging sides of, of this whole crazy craft that we've decided to some for some reason pour our lives and most likely bank accounts into. <laughs> <laughs> now that's the reality right there. <laughs> well, well, thank you very much, Joel. And this is where I'd like to end the show. You're talking about a journey. I was in, uh, introduced to Indian classical music through Sam and his dad. I went on a journey. I I bought a sitar. It was a cheap one. I thought I was going to be Ravi Shankar or something. Uh, I went and got a sitar teacher. He said, your sitar is shit. He didn't say shit, but I had to invest quite a bit. I sold a bunch of my other instruments to buy this sitar. And I was really, people thought I was crazy. And even all these years later, I mean, I play it for myself, but I think sometimes I think of how bad and how, how not skilled I am because I'm stacking myself up against people that have literally studied it since they've been five to their till 75. And that's, that's the fear side, but the love side says you love it, play it, make noise on it. But sitting down in my room upstairs with my little Indian drone instrument on and tuning up the sitar, just tuning it, just playing it, playing simple phrases. That is pure love for me. And it it actually has paid out paid off because I've actually been able to use some sitar on Tomorrow Never Knows tracks, me and Sam's uh, side project. Uh, so yeah, sitar is definitely a labor of love, and it's it's about my soul and my spirit uh, becoming at peace and not worrying about do I measure up with a master who studied for seventy years. No, it's about here and now and playing for myself. Well, you know, we could we could all be so fortunate to have experiences like that. You know what I mean? So <clears throat> I think that's absolutely, absolutely amazing. That is so just glorifying for yourself. Um, I, I think that's wonderful. I think that we should all be chasing after that feeling in all and all the things that we we we, we want to do. That's amazing. 
For two tape decks and a mixing board, I'm Jay Mack. And I'm Sam Wade. And I'm Joel Dodson. Saying until next week, stay stay cosmic. cosmic.